Hi and welcome to Malicious Life, in collaboration with Cyberism. There is an argument to be made that blockchain is the fastest growing technology in mankind's history. Think about it. Artificial intelligence seems like it's developing way too fast, but the technology really dates back to the 50s, and Siri isn't as smart as it seems. Virtual reality began in the 60s or 70s, depending on how you look at it. The first IoT machine was devised in 82. Do you know when the first blockchain, the Bitcoin network, was deployed? 2009. That wasn't that long ago. Yet today, even your grandma has heard of Bitcoin. That growth is a direct result of the community supporting Bitcoin. The most revered are those weird and crazy early adapters that believed in it back when the rest of us either didn't know what it was or figured it was just some passing fad. Today, it's the diversity of interests represented on the platform that really pushes the needle forward. Individual investors, startups, corporations, miners and developers all use Bitcoin in different ways for different reasons. But any software upgrade has to be agreed upon by the majority of the community. So technical and philosophical debates about exactly how things should be never stop. It's highly productive. But this is the internet, after all. In some of those same online forums where rich technical discussions occur, things can also get nasty and personal. Highly intelligent people regress towards pettiness and childish name-calling. And it's not trivial either. People have real money on the line. Oftentimes, a lot of it. These two sides of Bitcoin's immense growth, the rapid technological achievement and the dangerous infighting, all came to a head in 2017, a year Bitcoiners will never forget. The setting was ripe. Through factors too multifaceted and complex to get into here, the price of Bitcoin began to rise faster than it ever had before. In January, one Bitcoin was worth about $1,000. By June, $3,000. In the month of November, the number hit five digits. People were becoming rich in less than a year's time. Suddenly, Bitcoin was a hot item to the public. What was it? How did it work? And how could I become a millionaire off it too? Social media flared, news channels picked up the story, word spread around the world. So everybody was winning. Money, attention, success poured out of every scene. It appeared that a golden age had dawned. But just under the surface, the network was teetering on the verge of collapse. The widespread popularity that early advocates had been waiting for had finally come, but with it came a high cost technical problems that were just nuisance when the community was small now became glaring and potentially lethal. Debates among tight communities of knowledgeable users and developers ballooned into full-on internet wars. Factions hardened. Heroes became enemies of the people. 
Over the next few episodes of Malicious Life, we're telling the story of one proposed update to the network. It was called Segwit 2X. The problem with Segwit 2X is that, depending on whom you ask, it was either the upgrade that could finally save Bitcoin, or a cyber attack that would ultimately destroy it. At a time when a dozen Bitcoin could buy you a new car, the network supporting it was quite literally splitting at the seams. Bitcoins, as you might already know, is a decentralized system in which every transaction, every transfer of Bitcoins from one wallet to another, needs to be processed and approved by the entire network. The two main issues at hand were the time it took the Bitcoin network to process and approve these transactions, and the fees users needed to pay for these transactions to go through. In the early days, when only a few people knew about Bitcoin, and even fewer took part in the network, transactions were processed very quickly, in a matter of seconds or minutes, and fees, which are an optional feature of the network, were non-existent. Over time, as Bitcoin got more popular, and as more transactions were initiated, the processing time of transactions grew from seconds and minutes to hours and days. As a consequence, more users were forced to pay fees in order for their transactions to be processed with a higher priority. By June 2017, the average fee users were paying in association with their transactions was $5. Now, $5 isn't a ton of money, but it does put a certain restriction on what kinds of transactions Bitcoin can be viable for, right? If you want to pay somebody $1,000 in Bitcoin, an extra five won't do much harm. But what about all the people who envisioned the future of money, a decentralized currency that could be used even just to purchase a cup of coffee in the morning? You can't pay for coffee with Bitcoin if the coffee costs $3.50, the payment costs another $5, and the payment itself is finalized after 24 hours or more. Together, these two problems threatened the future of Bitcoin as they limited its viability as a practical means of payment. Gavin Anderson, one of Bitcoin's main software developers and the founder of the Bitcoin Foundation, warned in an article he wrote on May 2015 that, quote, if the number of transactions waiting gets large enough, the end result will be an oversaturated network, busy doing nothing productive. I don't think that is likely. It's more likely people just stop using Bitcoin because transaction confirmation becomes increasingly unreliable. End quote. The question is then, why the long delays and the high fees? Well, we could spend hours talking about the technical structure of the Bitcoin network, but ultimately it all boils down to a single parameter, the size of a Bitcoin block. A block is simply a file which holds the data about transactions on the Bitcoin network. 
Since blocks store the data about transactions, it follows that the size of a block is the limiting factor on how many transactions it can hold. The smaller the block, the fewer transactions it can store. By design, the Bitcoin network can only process one block every 10 minutes, which means that the number of transactions that can be approved every 10 minutes, also known as the throughput of the system, is limited to the number of transactions each individual block holds. In 2017, a single block's size was limited to one megabyte. Blocks exceeding the limit were rejected by the network. That meant that Bitcoin's capacity was only four transactions per second. Even if you're not familiar with Bitcoin at all, you can probably tell that this isn't a lot. Visa processes nearly 2,000 transactions a second so that its users worldwide can make instant payments. When the Bitcoin community consisted of a few developers and drug dealers, this wasn't so much of a problem. But as people's bitcoins started doubling, quadrupling, and multiplying in obscene orders of magnitude, the business sector took note. As the 2010s went on, it became more and more profitable to be in bitcoin. So whereas in the early 2010s, transaction throughput was an issue largely debated by engineers on a technical level, it became very important to different kinds of people with more varied interests. But we still haven't answered the question. If limiting the size of the blocks hurts the network's throughput, why limit the size of blocks at all? To many in the community, it's just a given. The block size is one megabyte, and that's just how it is. But this limit wasn't actually part of the original Bitcoin white paper, and Satoshi Nakamoto, the creator of the network, didn't come up with the idea. In fact, at first, he was opposed to it. It was one of his closest colleagues, Hal Finney, who came up with the idea. Another early developer who goes by the name Crydit recalled the story, writing, quote, For what it's worth, I'm the guy who went over the blockchain stuff in Satoshi's first cut of the Bitcoin code. Satoshi didn't have a one megabyte limit in it. The limit was originally Hal Finney's idea. Both Satoshi and I objected that it wouldn't scale at one megabyte. Hal was concerned about a potential denial-of-service attack, though, and after discussion, Satoshi agreed. The one megabyte limit was there by the time Bitcoin launched. But all three of us agreed that one megabyte had to be temporary because it would never scale. End quote. So the one megabyte limit existed to prevent a scenario where a hacker could overload the blockchain by pushing an uncontrollable number of transactions all at once. It also served useful to have a certain level of scarcity to the block size. Crydit notes, quote, A lot of people wanted to piggyback extraneous information onto the blockchain, and before miners and the community generally realized that blockchain space was a valuable resource, they would have allowed it. The blockchain would probably be several times as big a download now if that limit hadn't been in place, end quote. 
if people added information to the blockchain that wasn't absolutely necessary for personal, political, or whatever reasons they might have, it would make the blockchain simply a bigger file than it needed to be. More data on the blockchain means fewer people can store all that data and participate in the security of the network. But as we've seen, as Bitcoin grew in popularity, this limit also started to have a real detrimental impact on the network's throughput. Luckily, one of Bitcoin's core developers had a breakthrough solution. Peter Vela is as much of a software engineer as a software engineer can get. He writes code obsessively. He even looks like an engineer. A short guy, messy hair and a beard, glasses with the kind of pale skin you develop by typing in dark rooms all day and night. In a community where everybody shouts at one another and people who don't actually know much pretend they do, Peter is hardly ever seen or heard in public. And when it comes to Bitcoin, he basically does know everything there is to know. As a result, he's taken on a kind of cult status. In 2018, the website Coindesk labeled him as the Zen Master. An old meme from the Chuck Norris-style website PeterVelaFacts.com summed it up best. The caption of the image read, quote, If a tree falls in the forest and no one is around to hear it, Peter Vela knows. Peter Vela doesn't write code. He wills it into existence. We are all actually living in a simulated reality created by Peter Vela. On the seventh day, God rested, but Peter Vela submitted a pull request. End quote. Peter is best known for his proposal called Segregated Witness, or SegWit for short. What's SegWit? Well, every Bitcoin transaction includes a sender, a receiver, an amount, and a signature. A signature is created when a sender's private key and transaction data are combined using a cryptographic algorithm. That signature, in effect, allows the network to verify that the sender is eligible to send the coins they are sending. SegWit proposed restructuring the data in the block such that every block can hold just under four times as many transactions as they could before. The throughput of the network is raised, and consequently, the fees the users needed to pay for each transaction are lowered. But that's only half the story. By restructuring the data in the block, SegWit also managed to cure a years-long vulnerability in the Bitcoin protocol called transaction malleability. Consider our senior producer, Nate Nelson. If you ask him, he'll say he's six foot one. And he's correct. Hear that, ladies? You could also say Nate's 73 inches tall. Since I'm from Israel, I'm more inclined to say that he's 1.85 meters high. Ladies, please, one at a time. You understand that all these values are equivalent, even though they're expressed differently. In cryptography, however, both the value and how it's expressed matter. Zero is different from zero, zero, zero. For years, it was possible to change the cryptographic ID of a Bitcoin transaction while the transaction was still processing, as long as you didn't change the value underneath. 
Historically, this wasn't a very common exploit, but it did discourage developers from deploying third-party services, software built on top of the blockchain itself. Like building a house on an unsecure foundation, you wouldn't want to deploy a service atop a blockchain so easily manipulated. So SegWit was a two-for-one deal, which made it popular with Bitcoin investors. But it didn't quite catch on with those who felt that simply raising the block size was a better solution. Instead, with SegWit on track to activate, some of these so-called big blockers got together to propose another network upgrade. Their solution would turn out to be much, much more controversial. When Asil Kayal stumbled upon malicious code hiding inside a seemingly innocent app, well, you know, it's just another day at the office. But then she realized who are the intended victims of the malware. And that's when things got interesting, because the malicious code targeted ISIS, the notorious terrorist organization. Who wants to spy on ISIS operatives? You're probably thinking about the US or maybe Israel, but the true answer might surprise you. Domestic Kitten is the name given to that malware and the title of an episode of CP Radio, a new podcast from Checkpoint's research lab produced by me and the team behind Malicious Life. In each episode of CP Radio, we'll take a deep dive into a recent research published by Checkpoint Research and talk with Checkpoint's top researchers, like Asil Kayal, about their investigations and discoveries. Check out CP Radio. Search for CP Radio in your favorite podcast app or point your browser to research.checkpoint.com. Jeff Garzik, the second character in our story, has a knack for getting in early on big software projects. Out of college, he joined the team that developed CNN's very first website. He moved on to Red Hat, where he helped develop the Linux kernel, which, among other things, became the basis for Android's operating software. So if you own an Android today, there's a little Jeff Garzik in there. In 2010, Jeff came upon an online post about Bitcoin. It wouldn't take long before he made his mark on the technology. On August 8, 2010, he posted in the legendary Bitcoin Talk forum where early adopters, pioneers, and Nakamoto himself used to debate and discuss all things Bitcoin. His post didn't read as anything particularly alarming. It was quite short, actually. He wrote, quote, The value out in this block, number 74638, is quite strange. End quote. He copied the code for the upcoming block. The block contained two value out fields, which corresponded with how many bitcoins the receiver of the transaction would get. In total, they added up to over 184 billion bitcoin, completely out of thin air. I probably don't have to tell you that that's a lot of Bitcoin. But for context, it's worth mentioning that programmed into the Bitcoin code itself is a rule that no more than 21 million Bitcoin will ever exist. 
So in this single transaction, one person was going to receive approximately, well, let's see, if you subtract 21 million from 184 billion, okay, drag the one, and yeah, here we go. One person was going to receive approximately 184 billion more Bitcoin than will ever exist. So this wasn't just a quite strange block, as Jeff Gozik put it. It was a cyber attack. Almost as soon as Jeff raised the issue, Satoshi Nakamoto and his colleagues got to patching the Bitcoin software client. Within three hours, they've come up with a patch, and within five, they'd deployed it. Within the day, Bitcoin was saved from complete collapse. Gazik became renowned for having discovered the bug and went on to become one of the network's most important core software developers for the next four years. By mid-decade, he'd earned his spot in the pantheon of early developers, entrepreneurs, and proselytizers revered in the Bitcoin community. People like Peter Vela, Gavin Anderson, and many others, some of whom we'll get to later in this story, looked up to as the pioneers who helped shape Bitcoin for the rest of us. But as Batman once said, you either die a hero or you live long enough to see yourself become the villain. In 2017, as the Bitcoin community began to fracture, Jeff Gozik chose a side. He did so by putting his name behind the proposal called Segwit2x. Segwit2x was deceptively simple. Here, I can describe it in one sentence. Adopt Peter Vela's Segwit, then double the block size from 1 megabyte to 2. Get it? Segwit2x. Segwit and double the block size. Easy. It was first introduced with a proposal called the New York Agreement, signed by a number of the most powerful people and businesses in Bitcoin. The man at the heart of it all, the Thomas Jefferson of this proposal, was Barry Silbert. It's not uncommon to refer to it actually as Barry Silbert's New York Agreement. Barry's a good guy to have on your side. One of the few most powerful investors in cryptocurrencies, he was an early investor in companies like Coinbase and Ripple, which went on to become household names in Bitcoin space. In 2015, he founded the Digital Currency Group, one of the biggest VC groups in the sector. All this makes him sound like a big, scary guy, but up close, it's kind of hard to not like Barry. He's got short, messy hair and one of those pudgy baby faces you just want to squeeze. And he's usually smiling, too. Even if you watch him talk about, you know, market trends and investment figures on CNBC, he does it with a little smirk. In May of 2017, nearly 60 Bitcoin companies in over 20 countries had quickly signed on to show support. Together, miners representing just over 80% of the hashing power of the Bitcoin network signaled they were behind the agreement. Some of the most influential people in Bitcoin were behind it. People like Mike Belsh, CEO of the wallet company BitGo and the principal author of HTTP2O, Jihan Wu, 
the 31-year-old billionaire CEO of Bitmain, which, along with other things, controls the largest mining pool on the Bitcoin network, and Jeff Garzik. Jeff didn't just support the proposal. He was actively developing the software implementation necessary to implement it, called BTC1. With all this positivity, it's hard to believe that, to its detractors, the New York Agreement represents everything wrong with what Bitcoin was turning into. Why? As we've seen, doubling the size of blocks has its benefits with regards to high throughput and lower fees. But it also has its downsides. Consider the issue of full nodes versus light nodes. Bitcoin users are encouraged to keep a copy of the entire blockchain on their computers. These full nodes act as watchful eyes against malicious actors who might try tampering with the blockchain for their own profit. But not all users run full nodes because it requires that your computer maintain a copy of the entire history of Bitcoin since 2009. That's a ton of data. As of this writing, around 280 gigabytes in total. It's much easier to run a light node, which contains much less data, doesn't provide as much security to the network, but doesn't require as much of your computer. What happens then if, due to the larger block size, the Bitcoin network were to process many more transactions per 10 minutes than it already does? More data needs to be stored at a faster rate. 280 gigabytes become 300, 400 gigabytes before you know it. And most people simply can't afford to keep half a terabyte of data sitting around on their hard drives. More users will have to run light nodes instead of full ones, meaning they won't be able to participate in the security of the network. When only the already richest and most powerful users on the network are left to maintain it, their power grows even further. You no longer have decentralization. Those weird and crazy people who believed in Bitcoin, not just as a money-making investment, but as the future of money, they wanted their platform to grow, but not if it came at the expense of the democratic spirit with which they created it. The whole point of blockchain and cryptocurrencies was to remove the need for centralized power, to delegate that power back to the greater public. But the majority of people who supported Barry Silbert's New York Agreement weren't the weird and crazy people first drawn to Bitcoin for its technical ingenuity and libertarian spirit. Instead, the New York Agreement was supported mostly by miners, people mostly located in China who came to the platform during its period of early growth as a means of profit-making. Miners are what we call the people who run high-powered computers which perform the cryptographic puzzle solving necessary to processing Bitcoin transactions. Bitcoin's senders have to pay fees in order to incentivize miners to perform the calculation and get the transactions approved. Whoever processes the transaction into a block first gets the fee payments. 
Miners, therefore, have a clear incentive. The more transactions that occur over the network, the more fees are available to scoop up. So what we have here is a clear conflict of interests. More transactions means more money can move around the Bitcoin network, making everybody richer. But too many transactions opens up all kinds of potential security failures and, even worse, threatens the very ethos of Bitcoin as a decentralized and democratic cryptocurrency. And to many, it went even further than that. They believed there was something disingenuous about the picture Barry was painting. Even if over 50 businesses were behind the plan, plenty others more didn't take a position or publicly came out against it. Even if the New York agreement had all the businesses in Bitcoin on its side, which it didn't, and all the miners, which it didn't, that still doesn't include two important groups. Firstly, there's the vast majority of the Bitcoin community. Ordinary people who have their money invested in the coin and run ordinary nodes in the network. Where did they stand on all this? Well, they weren't asked. And that's the first problem. The New York Agreement was signed by a bunch of companies and miners before it was even exposed to the wider public. It was only an agreement among wealthy corporate interests. Ironically, it was first introduced to the world during 2017's Bitcoin Consensus Conference. And it wasn't like Barry, Jeff and their buddies were asking, hey everyone, how do you like our idea to double the block size? It was more like, here's what we came up with, here's everybody we've got on our side, we hope you'll join in. Secondly, Segwit2x didn't account for the single most important group of people in the entire network, the elite group of Bitcoin core developers that actually maintains the software, like Peter Vela. These are the guys who work tirelessly full-time on making sure that Bitcoin is functional and secure for the rest of us. The geniuses without whom the system would fall apart. They know more about how Bitcoin works and how it can work and how it should work than anyone else by miles. What did they think about Segwit2x? Besides Jeff Garzik, not a single one of them liked the idea. Peter Vela, for example, the guy responsible for the Segwit part of Segwit2x, came out against it. That should say something. And the 2x supporters probably knew that their proposal wasn't as popular as they were making it out to be. How do we know? Well, usually when a fundamental change is proposed to the Bitcoin software, it takes the form of a BIP, Bitcoin Improvement Proposal. BIPs are tested and vetted by the wider community to make sure they're safe. Once the community accepts the BIP, the core team implements it into the core software and all nodes on the network update. It's a standard agreed-upon system to ensure that updates to the Bitcoin code aren't malicious, buggy or unpopular. Segwit2x could have been proposed in the beginning as a BIP. Then the community could signal how they felt about it. 
Instead, even before the community knew what it was, it was presented as an agreement. But who actually agreed to it? Thus, to oversimplify things, we're left with two teams. On one side, the so-called small blockers, users and core developers. On the other side, big blockers, businesses and miners. The block size doubling would occur in November 2017, meaning that if anybody was going to stop Segwit2x, they had about five months to do it. And let's be clear, listeners, this wasn't an ordinary conflict among respectful disagreeing parties. The Segwit2x debate quickly devolved into a chaotic mess, where any sympathy for the wrong side could get you in major trouble. I know, because I experienced it myself by accident. In preparation for this episode, I posted on social media that the Malicious Life team was looking for people who were involved in Bitcoin during Segwit2x. Boring as that. I got a few helpful responses. Then someone commented, quote, LOL, are you out of your mind with this bullshit scam? I was a bit surprised. Still pretty new to the whole subject. Scam, I wrote back. Why scam? You can't read, they replied. We went on, but you get the idea. Of course, this guy was an asshole and doesn't represent the larger Bitcoin community. But he does represent, arguably, some not-so-small part of it. People really, really cared about Segwit2x, and even the slightest inference risks offending those on either side of the debate. Plenty of what I already said would the right ears sound extremely politically charged. So here's the thing. You know now what the New York agreement is. You know why some people had a problem with how it was presented to the public. But none of what you've heard really explains the sheer loathing felt on both sides of the debate. By the end of this story, people will be called much worse names than I was, there will be public shaming campaigns, and sterling reputations will be forever tarnished. What was it that made Segwit2x this poisonous? Maybe because, according to some, it was actually not an improvement proposal at all, but an attack meant to take over the entire network. How come? The answer to this question and many more coming up in our next episode of Malicious Life. That's it for this episode. Thank you for listening. As always, our website is malicious.life, where you'll find all of our past episodes and their full transcripts. If you love the show, share a link to your favorite episode with a friend, a colleague, or a family member. You can also follow at maliciouslife on Twitter or me at at ranlevy. That's R-A-N-L-E-V-I. Malicious Life is produced by PI Media. 
Is your organization thinking about creating a podcast? Talk to us. We are the experts when it comes to making complicated and challenging topics accessible to a broad audience. My email address is ran at ranlevy.com. Thanks again to CyberReason for underwriting the podcast. Learn more at cyberreason.com. Bye-bye. Oh my God. Oh my God. CK Music. 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 Music.